0: Bone pain is the most common type of pain from cancer and it can be extremely debilitating to patients. Cancer-induced bone pain is the subject of a clinical review on the bmj.com. I'm Larder, Clinical Reviews Editor, and I'm joined by two of the authors of the review to discuss how to assess and manage these symptoms. First we have Dr Chris Kane. Hello Chris. Hi there. And we also have Professor Mike Bennett. Hi Mike. Hello there. Chris, let's start with the definition of cancer-induced bone pain. Um, what is it and what type of cancer is it associated with?
1: Yeah, So cancer-induced bone pain is obviously a type of cancer pain and has quite a lot of overlap with other types of cancer pain. But it's a specific pain state within cancer pain that has overlapping features of both inflammatory and neuropathic pain um, and therefore has slightly different treatment management options as compared with other types of cancer pain. You most commonly find it in cancers such as breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer or myeloma. Um, But it can come from any cancer really, but obviously those being the most common cancers is where you're going to see it most in clinical practice.
0: Okay, and Chris, can you also tell us about some of the clinical features of the pain?
1: Cancer bone pain is most commonly found where bone most commonly metastasizes to um, such as the vertebra, pelvis, long bones, and ribs. And it really should be considered in anybody with pain in those areas. Um, it's Clinically, it's described in some cross-sectional surveys as kind of annoying, gnawing, aching, and nagging. So not the kind of sharp stabbing pain that you can often see, but more of a deep-seated, um, grasping-type pain.
0: Are there any red flags that should trigger clinicians to suspect that other things might be going on?
1: Yes, absolutely. So so anybody presenting with back pain who has had cancer in the past should immediately raise suspicion of cancer-induced bone pain, um, no matter how long ago. Um, Also, if anybody's presenting with features such as weight loss, or with any of the other standard red flags that you'd associate with back pains in a slightly more elderly population over the age of 50. Um, Anybody really coming with weakness as well or neurological signs um, should immediately trigger further investigation. And obviously, in the differential diagnosis, we should be considering cancer as a potential cause of that. Anyone with pinpoint vertebral pain as well should raise a suspicion that there's cancer-induced bone pain could be part of the diagnosis. There, um, I think they're really the main features that would raise suspicion to as clinicians.
0: Okay, and in the review you also talk about um, other presentations, so vertebral fractures and spinal cord compression as being possible, either presenting or subsequent features. How How are those identified?
1: Yeah. So one of the main features of anything with cancer-induced bone pain, really, is that actually it's associated with movement a lot more as well. So anything that's twisting um, is exacerbated by movement. Um, it is there at rest, but certainly the the it escalates significantly whenever you try and move. That would really raise a suspicion that it may be a vertebral fracture as much as anything else. You may also see some neurological features when you examine them. Um, such as weakness or reduced sensation. And spinal cord compression um, can actually present quite insiduously. So you can actually just get initially just a grasping, almost a feeling of tightness around the back um, that, that slowly comes on and develops into a pain over some time. And it can present with just general weakness rather than specific neurological features. Um, but then can develop into significant neurological features later on. You can also get um, thigh weakness specifically and leg weakness, um, which um, raises a suspicion of, of spinal cord compression. So often with our patients, we would recommend, even if you can't find specific neurological features, but they are generally weak and they've got back pain, that you should be thinking about spinal cord compression. And thinking about further investigation for that. Obviously, any patient presenting with um, urinary retention or bowel incontinence should also immediately flag up any um, immediate investigation. But because spinal cord compression outcomes are so clearly linked with your status, your functional status um, at the time of diagnosis, in that if you are walking and you're mobile prior to you being diagnosed, then your chances of walking afterwards are much more, um, much greatly increased compared with if you've got weakness or if you're immobile prior to it. So that's why we're really trying to emphasize to have such a low threshold for further investigation um, in these patients because it's so important to their overall quality of life in the long term. So um, we don't want to obviously flood GP practices and 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 MRI investigation but really often the problem is that people wait too long to investigate these things further and their quality of life outcomes are not as good as they could be if you have a low threshold for investigating things.
0: Yeah I mean it's interesting that you say that the presentation of cord compression can be quite insidious in these patients because I think we all recognize the the kind of very classic sort of syndrome of or constellation of symptoms but often by that stage that is quite a late stage if you're seeing someone with urinary incontinence or you know unable to walk so it sounds as if having a high index of suspicion in patients at risk is quite important.
1: Absolutely and I think I mean the the go-to investigation is an MRI generally in any patient with these features anyway So if you're suspecting the patient's got back pain and they've got any of the other red flags, then really immediate referral for further investigation is indicated.
0: Okay. Um, Moving on to management. Um, In the review, you talk about the importance of non-drug measures and how they are an essential part of management. Mike, can you tell us about what these measures are?
2: Sure. Because cancer-induced bone pain uh, often affects uh, daily activities for patients, maintenance of function is a a crucial uh, emphasis uh, of clinical management. What we know from research and what patients tell us is that uh, they already do a number of things like uh, uh, resting, um, uh, avoiding strenuous movement uh, or perhaps uh, making use of movement aids like a walking stick to enable them to maintain their function. Sometimes home adaptations like bath rails um, or other devices to ease uh, movement uh, are often used by patients.
0: Okay, I have to say that certainly in my practice, the non-pharmacological approaches sometimes get a bit overlooked because you're so focused on providing medications and making sure the the doses of medications are adequate and that sort of thing. So um, for listeners... um, who see these patients, how do you convey, what's the important advice to give to patients when you're discussing these non-drug measures?
2: I, I think the it's worth uh, emphasising to patients that uh, non-drug measures are actually important. and And I think that's partly because they're often as effective or if not more effective than some of the drug interventions. And secondly, I think patients feel that um, they they have to take the medicines that are prescribed for them, even though they sometimes worry about adverse effects of particularly the strong opioids uh, and how that might affect them. So I think maintaining patients' confidence in their own uh, uh, initiatives or their own gut instincts is important.
0: And um, you talk about a study in the review where pain management was improved by modifying things like getting rest and getting enough sleep so what's your advice to patients about those those steps
2: I, I think it, it's important to um, maintain activity as much as possible um, so although uh, if there's an acute exacerbation of pain then clearly some resting or taking a breather is in, is important uh, on the other hand it's it, it wouldn't be right to emphasize that the patient should remain in bed or on bed rest for weeks at a time because we all know that that's bad for patients in the long run so maintaining some sort of activity, uh, moving, um, you know, moving between a bed and a chair or up, being up and about uh, with walking aids or adaptations, is, is the goal really?
0: Okay, um, and can you talk us through some of the other um, initial management steps that one might initiate, say, in primary care?
2: Sure using the sort of standard uh, uh, analgesic ladder approach, uh, we know that anti-inflammatories, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are probably uh, effective uh, in some pains. Paracetamol is probably less effective. Um, Clearly, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories have some adverse effects and they may be contraindicated for some patients. But it's always worth considering these non-opioid simple analgesics first. Uh, Beyond that, uh, usually some form of an opioid is uh, helpful. Uh, We know that strong opioids are probably the most useful um, in terms of their effectiveness for cancer bone pain. Um, Patients are naturally reluctant to uh, take these uh, unless they feel it's absolutely necessary. But I think it's important to uh, reassure patients uh, of the benefits of some strong opioids, particularly if the pain is very severe, um, and also to reassure them that some of the side effects that they fear they may get uh, are probably unfounded.
0: Um, often, I mean, from my experience as a GP in primary care, there is some anxiety, I suppose, really about. Um, initiating and titrating opioids and how frequently you should be monitoring for um, the effect and side effects. And I know um, palliative care is a specialty that has much more experience with this. Um, what's your advice to uh, people in primary care or non-specialist settings who who are starting and then monitoring opioids? Sure.
2: I, I mean, starting or commencing uh, strong opioids, uh, it, it can certainly be undertaken by non-specialists. It's not, the, uh, it's not just restricted to palliative care specialists. Um, uh, clinicians uh, may want to look up uh, NICE guidance on this that was published a couple of years ago with a recent evidence update last year uh, on how to uh, commence and titrate strong opioids in, in palliative care. Uh, In general, um, starting at a low dose um, uh, and addressing patients' concerns about addiction or tolerance uh, and uh, how they might deal with any side effects is important. Um, Giving some verbal advice about uh, how to take the opioids regularly um, and also offering means of review or some sort of follow-up is important. Uh, I think it's probably also useful to say that if someone with cancer bone pain is needing strong opioids, it may represent a progression of their disease, or they may also have other needs uh, uh, in that context. And referral to a palliative care specialist um, uh, for some support may be considered at that point also.
0: Okay. You mentioned some of the concerns that um, patients may have when starting opioids um, about addiction and tolerance and side effects. What do you how do you address those concerns? What do you tell patients?
2: Um, what I usually say is that um, uh, patients are often concerned about addiction. And uh, I usually say that that's um, not something that uh, would affect them if the opioid is being taken for pain relief um, as opposed to being taken for pleasure. Uh, So addiction isn't isn't something to worry about. Um, uh, Patients sometimes worry about um, tolerance. In other words, if they start taking the opioid now, it will become less effective if the pain gets uh, worse. And again, we can reassure patients that that doesn't happen. Um, On the other hand, some of the side effects that patients may experience, like some initial drowsiness when the drug is started or when there's a significant dose change, Sometimes patients become uh, can feel nauseated for a couple of days, uh, uh, and patients often experience constipation when they're started on us or when they're on regular strong opioids, and that highlights the need to take a, a, regular, a regular laxative uh, at the time of uh, starting opioid therapy.
0: And there's um, there's also a patient perspective in the review um, where the patient you've interviewed outlines their priorities. And one of those is not wanting be- to be too sedated from medications and maintain um, a sort of quality of life. Um, and how, how do you manage that? Because that's quite a tricky one, that balance between pain management and that sort of sedating effect that a lot of these medications may have.
2: You're absolutely right, and I think the, the patient um, who we interviewed, uh, you know, emphasized the knee or her need in particular to maintain sort of function and activity and, and her kind of social role. Um, one of the problems sometimes with cancer-induced bone pain is that because it's often associated with movement, some patients may experience quite severe pain on movement, but actually at rest, pain is at a very low level. And one of the challenges is, uh, by prescribing regular strong opioids uh, for patients, there are many times in the day when they don't experience a lot of pain, it's only those sharp bursts of pain on movement. Sometimes in those situations, uh, patients can receive a higher dose of strong opioid than, than, than necessary and can experience drowsiness. So I would suggest if, if the pattern of the pain is sort of very low level background or rest pain, But only pain on movement, then perhaps a very low dose regular opioid is required, uh, but possibly some uh, other medicine for, or to take a breakthrough dose or a rescue dose of opioid for predicted movements, like going to the bathroom in the morning um, or at night.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, And timing those. those medications for breakthrough pain I know that can that can be quite challenging can't it because you're sort of essentially having to anticipate when when it might come
2: that's right I mean that is a challenge both for patients and clinicians Um, uh, there are there are often uh, delays in how quickly the drug might work uh, or how long the drug might last for the effects of the drug Um, And quite often, for a lot of these patients, it only takes them a couple of minutes to go to the bathroom and come back again. Um, uh, And patients themselves sometimes choose to just put up with the pain rather than put up with a couple of hours of drowsiness if they've taken a big dose of a strong opioid for for breakthrough pain. That's that's certainly an area for future research, I think, is how to better manage some of those breakthrough pain episodes. Mm
0: -hmm. Right, okay, um, and you mentioned the point when um non-specialists should consider seeking palliative care or specialist input, um which is if you know those initial measures aren't aren't proving sufficient to control pain or if there are other sort of worrying red flag type features. Um, can you talk us through the management options that are available um in the specialist setting?
2: um Sure. Well, certainly beyond um, uh, the non-specialist, uh, in other words, the initial uh, drug kind of uh, titration, um, radiotherapy is probably the the most important intervention for patients for their cancer-induced bone pain in terms of uh, its effectiveness. So I think early referral um, to an oncologist or through a part-of-care specialist in order to um, uh, facilitate that w- would be important. Um Other interventions that are available include uh, bisphosphonates, um, either orally or intravenously, um, and they can have an important role for some patients in improving cancer-induced bone pain. Quite often, oncologists or palliative care specialists can administer bisphosphonates. Uh, Beyond that, some of the other um, interventions are are less frequent uh, in terms of their their use, uh, but can be particularly important. Uh, for example, surgery for pathological fractures um, or other interventional procedures like spinal uh, infusions or kyphoplasty, for example, uh, for vertebral painful vertebral metastases.
0: Okay. Okay, well, just to finish up with, we'll just talk um, about some of your uh, take-home points from the review, your bottom line. Um, yeah. The most important one for me was focusing on uh, the maintenance of function um, as, as being a priority for the patient?
2: Yes, I, I think that comes across clearly from patient uh, research uh, in what's important for patients. Uh, and often that, that determines um, their uh, concordance uh, with drug treatment. Um, some patients quite often might forego some drug treatment in order to be more alert when they're moving or to be alert at a particular occasion. Um, so I think I think emphasizing to patients that maintenance of function is important actually is is really supportive uh, and it enables patients to manage themselves uh, with more confidence also, and I think that's at the root of all this um, uh, approach.
0: Great. Well, on that note, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Professor Mike Bennett and Dr. Chris Kane. Thanks
2: very much
0: indeed thank you and that review is now available on the bmj.com